Well, good morning, church. Here we come to the end of it, our fifth and final Sunday in the Burning Questions series. Is that me? I changed nothing, Matt. All right, I'm going to switch to the handheld. What's that? Oh. (laughs) Reverend Camille. Quick aside, and then we'll get started. This sanctuary is going through a small facelift this next week, and it's a multi-day project. So you heard, as Mel announced this morning, that we're going to be in our fellowship hall for our 1030 service next Sunday, and we do have some surprises. Uh, One of those is to reference the history of this place, and I do use the name of Reverend Peter Falbo. Now, I say that because I had to pre-record a sermon for our streamed community this last week, and Matt was running sound for that as well. And as soon as I said Pete's name, my microphone just went bananas. I mean, pops and crackles and everything. So I had to like, do the whole sermon all over again with the handheld mic. So Pete, if you're here this morning, <laughs> we give thanks and praise for that good work, and we're excited for that process. Actually, as an aside, I tried this on at the, uh, at the earlier service, but I'm certain there are some here. Raise your hand if you were here 25 years ago when that was the worship center of this place. I knew you had hair then, Pete. I've seen the pictures. Absolutely. <laughs> It'll be a gift for us to reach back into our history. We're going to start a series on gratitude, and so we're going to talk about gratitude for our people and to realize that no matter who is up here in a pastoral role, the strength of this church has always been with its laity, and so as we celebrate the Towel and Basin Award and as we thank our unpaid servants, it'll be a great intersection with our past and our present. And then we anticipate that two weeks from today we'll be back in here uh, to rejoice in our worship center again. Join me in a moment of prayer as we get started on today's task, though. Holy God, in whom we all live and move and have our being, we give you thanks for this morning. We ask that your spirit move among us and shape us in this time. Move up and down the aisle and across the roads to open hearts and lives such that we might see your work in our midst. Help us to know you and help us to know ourselves. That we might be able to say in this time that we've worshipped, that we've offered our lives, and then in the midst of that offering all was found faithful and acceptable to you. O Lord, who is our strength and the source of all salvation. Amen. Our Burning Questions series has gone on five weeks strong. You can watch the last four weeks on YouTube or on our church website. Uh, But this is week five, and uh, the ground, our hope for this was to have a deeper connection uh, with me as the new lead pastor, with Reverend Camille as we are a team, uh, and with one another as we answer some of the questions that were on your hearts and your lives. Now, we did did so with some levity with the Hot Ones videos, and thank you, uh, Christine. Um, That was only bite number two, uh, uh, but we managed to get through it together. Um, But uh, that levity has been fun. In fact, her full interview and uh, the full interviews of Erica and Bernard will be up in the coming week uh, to celebrate. You can see those on YouTube as well. But the idea is a deeper sense of connection around your questions. And to be able to try and stand before you and answer those with some authenticity to realize that as a pastor, it's not my goal to put on airs uh, or to uh, somehow uh, win your, your faithfulness and expectation by being fraudulent or not who I am, but to share with a sense of peace and hope and optimism my heart and my spiritual life and growth. The ground we've covered, we've talked about evil and suffering, we've talked about the Bible, we've talked about church and sexuality, we talked about last week with Reverend Camille, the life of faith. And so this week we're coming to a question that I have heard repeatedly in my 22 years of ministry. So what? My dad, who's a worshiping part of this faith community, he watches every Sunday faithfully on his TV at home in Las Vegas with my stepmom, and it turns out 
This morning, also uh, with my Aunt Lori, who's in town visiting, they put me up on the Apple TV in their living room uh, and celebrate with us. Uh, but my dad's a retired Methodist minister and a retired district superintendent. He's seen preachers of all stripes, been all over his annual conference and ours. And one of the things that he always asks of preachers and of me as his son is when you come to the end of your sermon, you need to be able to have addressed the question, so what? No matter how well you've talked about the gospel, no matter how well you've talked about the stories of your day, no matter how well you've sung your songs, the people of God come with a question that says, so what does this have to do with me? What then can I do this with this in my life? So this is a question I hear a lot. But I want you to know that I want to start this morning by saying, so what is a heart's cry? Because that's where this whole series actually started with. Back in May, before I had even stood before you as your pastor, Camille and I met with uh, members of your worshiping community to worship planning through the end of this year, to talk about the major uh, uh, flow and, and ebb and needs of this community and what we might bring to the table. And one of the conversation pieces that happened around that table in Sherry Claus's backyard was somebody who said, you know, I was in a setting just like this, having wine with some friends with the community. They know I'm a part of a church. And their question for me was, so what? Why go to church in the 21st century? What does it still have to do with us? And I was really struck by that. And so burning questions really became rooted in the idea that the first question we started with was with the world's question for us as a church in this day and age. So what? What do you have for me? Why does it matter anymore? And there's a cynicism to modernity. Maybe my job would be easier if we were all in the the Middle Ages, or maybe even the Dark Ages, because none of y'all could read, none of y'all would have Facebook or Twitter or social media, none of you would have access to great resources and small group studies. Your worship life in that period of time was facilitated solely by the priest. And the simple truth is, is that a large portion of that service, when the Mass was done in Latin, you wouldn't understand anyway. You'd look at the stained glass windows and see some of the stories of the life of our faith, maybe the Good Samaritan, maybe the work of the disciples, maybe Jesus upon the cross or the empty tomb. Those pictures and images would shape your faith, but you wouldn't have a Bible to read. You wouldn't have a way to reflect on your deeper sense of faith. When the priest stood before you and said, this was the word of God, you took that at face value and for fact. Fast forward to the 20th and 21st century. Our world has gotten small. I know where half of the people who aren't here this morning are because they're posting their travel log pictures on Facebook. And so in that sense of connection, there's this beautiful fellowship that happens with our connection, but it means that you have access not just to a variety of translations of Scripture on your phone, but the legacy and teaching of the church through all of its manifestations and the ways in which it has been challenged by thinkers and the ways in which it's been challenged by the world. You have access to voices and voices of influence in our day and age that you never would have experienced 500 years ago. There simply wouldn't be a place for atheists to have a forum to be heard by church people in the way that you might get in social media or on your evening news. And so the challenge that the church faces comes from a sense of cynicism. 
The modern world says, I know way more than just to trust somebody like Andy standing up in front of me and saying, this is the word of God, and having it be that. No, the work is more nuanced and the wrestling continues. But the simple truth is, is it's not a problem with modernity. It's biblical and historical. Jesus, Paul, and the apostles were all challenged with the question of so what? It came in a variety of ways from folks like scribes and Pharisees, from mothers who wanted healing for their children, from generals who cared for their servants, from soldiers at the foot of the cross, from Galileans and Gentiles alike, in the courts of Rome and in the streets of Corinth, people's big question for them is the same as it is for me and for us. So what? It's a question of relevance. Can anything that you are saying and proclaim somehow make a difference in me, for me, and have something to say about my life? Before we answer that question, here's the thing you need to know. So what, church, is a wake-up call? It should serve as an alarm. And maybe you're like Camille and I, and in the morning you have like six alarms. You know, the first one when you really should wake up if you want to accomplish all the things that you want to do, including making yourself breakfast. And then that one that says, no, you really should get out of bed. And that one that says, if you don't get out of bed, your kid's going to be late to school. And then that one that says, no, really, really, it's time to be up and start your day. For the church, this is that last one. Wake up and pay attention. Because the world outside this place asks the question, so what? Why does what you do week to week, not just on Sunday mornings, but in your life of faith, have anything of substance and matter anymore? But we have to learn to hear from the world. We have to take their questions seriously. Now, there's a version of Christian teaching and a version of church life that says those questions stand in opposition to the church, and we need to separate ourselves from them, that this is a sacred and holy place, sacrosanct, and we cannot be dirtied with the questions of the world. But my friends, you need to know that that was not the model of Jesus. Jesus taught from observation. Consider the lilies of the field. Look at the birds in the sky. Foxes have homes. I've got nothing. And he was not only contextual, I'm sorry, not only taught from observation from what he saw, he was contextual in his preaching. When he looked around at the people that he was preaching to, he realized he was talking to farmers who were tending lands that they served in a spirit of indebtedness to people above him. And so when he wanted to talk about the kingdom of God, he said it is like a sower who goes out to sow. Seed on the path. Seed in the rocks. Seed in the good soil. That's what the Word of God is like when it takes life. What happens when you are a contextual church and you are answering the world's questions of so what is you bring the gospel and the truth to them in the midst of their story. Not say what I really want is to stand apart from you. It's this is where it is relevant to you. That's how Jesus taught. Jesus was in church by all accounts Nine days in his three-year ministry. Three different times it's reported he teaches in a synagogue, and for six days he teaches at the temple before he's crucified. That's a tough run at the end. Nine days he was in a church. 
The rest of the time, he was church to the world, out making a difference. He was answering their question of so what by being present to them, to offer them healing, hope, and possibility to feed them and to meet them where they were. But there's a risk about being where the people are and trying to meet their needs. Getting rejected stings. How many of you can remember an early rejection? Maybe it was writing on a note, do you like me, circle yes or no. The most crushing and crippling thing is when that comes back circled as a no and it's just passed back across the desk. The hard part, church, is that sometimes that note comes back to us as no. I hear what you've got to say but I don't like how you say it. I don't like who you are, how you live your life. There is always a risk in rejection when we are invitational, when we are contextual, and we are observing the wake-up call of the world. A well-meaning member of our 9 o'clock service asked the question. really has to do with kind of traditional expectation, but it was framed in this way. Is church a casual place? And what they're getting at is there's a history, a recent history, in the life of Protestant American worship, where it was expected that Sunday was an opportunity for us to give God glory with our pattern of life. So much so that it became a a, a cultural phenomenon to talk about wearing your Sunday best, that you'd have a suit or a tie or a new bow tie that you would wear because it's the best thing that you had to offer. You might work in coveralls that are covered in dirt the rest of your day, but you have something different that you give and wear to God. That's where that question comes from. And it's a faithful burning question because they look around and they say, well, I I don't see anybody in a big Easter bonnet hat. I mean, the, the pastor looks almost comfortable. He's not even wearing a robe. Has church lost its relevance and stepped away? Is it just now a casual place? And my answer to that is, well, both and. There's nuance there. Church is always an opportunity to give God glory and our best. But if we are truly being the family of faith and the body of Christ in this place for the world, we are going to run into people who cannot yet give their best to God. And far be it from us to be the gatekeepers to the kingdom and to worship in this place to say, you don't look like what I expect, you don't sound like what I expect, you don't smell like what I expect, you're not rich enough, you're not pretty enough to be a part of the kingdom of God. That is not the church. It's not how Jesus worshiped. It's not, I think, how we will worship in our common life together. Jesus welcomes the sinners, the lame and the broken, those with leprosy and disease, and the poor in their midst. Nobody got dressed up to go hear Jesus preached, and yet the Holy Spirit moved among them and shaped their lives. Church is still a place to give God our best, but not at the expense of us practicing our best hospitality to whoever we live and serve with in this place. Friends, so what, as a question, is complicated. Two weeks ago, I promised I'd say a little bit more about what's going on in the Methodist Church right now, and this is that spot. Because when you Google United Methodist Church right now, all of the news stories that come up will burn your nostril hairs out. Because we're in a complicated place in our common history right now in this present moment. But I want to give you a bit of the brief history of Methodism in a nutshell. We exist in large part because of the Revolutionary War. 
We have about a 200-year history, same as our country. And the reason for that is when colonialists here in this United States wanted to practice the kind of religion that they had found value of as a part of the Wesleyan tradition, they realized that in England that meant being a part of the Church of England. And so if they were going to be Episcopalian or Anglican here in the U.S., they were afraid that part of their tithe would go back to the mother church and there for the crown. And as Hamilton taught us, that just doesn't work. And so it became American Methodists who insisted we need leadership, structure, possibility. And so born out of that kind of revolutionary spirit, we got a church about two centuries ago that's been striving to live into a sense of hope and possibility, meeting the social justice needs of our community and world, and shaping the world for God's grace and mercy. But that has always been a practice of tension. Hear me say that. There's never been a time in our history as United Methodists where we have been perfect and got it right, and today is no different. Our church has been divided around the issues of slavery, then post-slavery, the question of the participation and ordination of black individuals. Then after that, it became a question of the participation and ordination of women, and we were one of the earliest Protestant churches to get on board with that. And then between women and the conversation about homosexuality, there was a difficult time when they were talking about whether or not people who had been divorced could serve as lay leaders in church and be ordained and appointed in the ministry of the local church. These cultural shifts about expectation, about what it means to not just be a casual place, but to give glory to God, and then live into new tensions. And so we're at a place in our recent history where in meeting for general conference, a number of years ago, there was the hope that we might be able to address some of the exclusionary language of the Book of Discipline. And when that did not happen, there was anticipation that maybe we would look at dividing because there was such hurt on both sides of that conversation and that line about what church should be and how we should serve as a witness to the Spirit in our lives. And when the language did not change, what was true is that that division was in large part rooted in the fact that there were conservatives who said, if you're not going to punish our Western brothers and sisters for living a way that we believe to be antithetical to the book of discipline, we will leave. There was an unforeseen COVID impact in the midst of all of this. They couldn't get back to the table together on purpose to continue this conversation. And so in the trickle down since then, what has happened is in that May of this year, the Global Methodist Church was launched. It's an evangelical, traditional, fundamentalist branch of the expression of the Wesleyan Methodist Church. They retain a part of the name, but they are moving in their own direction. And I don't know as much about their intent and hope and theology as some might hope, because it's just not in my wheelhouse. It's not who I'm called and equipped to be. But what I do know is that choice and that option now has created a lot of tension a big part of the so what when you explore Methodism these days because you will find again and again reports and accounts of churches predominantly in the South that have voted for disaffiliation. That is a really fancy word for breaking up. Really fancy word for a great divorce within the hearts and lives of people. In our annual conference, we're not going to take a vote to disaffiliate as an annual conference, as a district, or even... I would suggest as this local church. We have our priorities in order. We understand some of what all means all is meant in its manifestation here. But Camille and I can tell you from friends and partners in ministry throughout the South, particularly in Texas, this is a heart-wrenching time. 
where churches just like ours are divorcing over maybe a difference of four or six votes, where the people come together and say, this is what I want, this is what you want, and so we will turn our backs on one another. So what is complicated? A burning question that came in is, what does our church, our district, or annual conference say about this and our position on the divide in a letter dated September uh, 22nd? our bishop wrote about the big tent of Methodism. This hope and invitation that we will not be a people who are forcing others to leave. We've heard the language of the option to go a different path, but it will not be our place, even as a more progressive annual conference, to force people out. We are willing to meet people in a place of difference and diversity and to celebrate the fact that while our theologies may differ, our hearts can lean towards a common work and hope. Bishop Grant Hagia talks about not forcing belief. I'm not going to make you believe anything. I'll continue to preach from a heart of the authenticity of who I am and who I feel called and who I believe the church is called to be, but I'm not going to force you into a particular pattern of belief. I'd fail if I tried. Nor does Grant say, are we going to force patterns of behavior? There are churches who have not done some of the good work as we have done here under Reverend Pete Falbo and other pastors in our tradition and then the work of our lay leadership in this church to embrace a sense of something like all means all and the work of God in this place. We're not going to force our patterns of behavior and positions on those churches. We'll find ways to come alongside to open up hearts and lives to the work of God. Now, all of that being said, it's true that a lot of that feels very dire And what does it mean that a United Methodist Church that used to be the largest Protestant denomination in our country is yet again going through a great divorce? It leads me to the place where so what is disheartening. And one of the questions that I've been asking of myself for a little while now, not just since I came here, I'm having a lot of fun in Valencia, but one of the questions that I've been having and that I think the world asks when they say so what is why bother? Why is it worth it to you? Why is it worth it to you, church? Why bother at all? That that becomes the deep struggle if we're going to fight this hard to be the people of God. Why bother? So what? Being the church in 2022. And so with that, I turn to our scripture for this morning. Acts chapter 2 falls just after the first great sermon of Peter and the transformation of the church. Verses 42 and following, the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. The early church had to answer the question, so what, regularly, particularly at a time where they were living into a tension of the outside world and the Roman authorities in their midst looking at them with great scorn. But their practice was fourfold. Four things they did. They were a community of learning. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were a community of intentionally being present together. They were community, one with another. They met together. They were sacramental. They were regularly breaking bread. 
And boy, howdy, were they a people of prayer. But even in the midst of that fourfold pattern of who they're meant to be, how to learn, how to be community, how to share in sacrament, and how to pray together, they consistently found themselves challenged from without and from within to answer the question, so why does any of this matter? Why should we be a people together and to hold these things in common? And from within, the earliest struggle that the church had was to not solely be Judaic in its nature. Because God had a plan to open up their hearts and their work to the Gentiles that surrounded them. And they began to include the outsider in their learning, community, sacrament, and prayer. They met needs. The needs of food and the needs of fellowship. The needs of community and communion. And the kind of need that can only be met when we pray together. And we know that devoting themselves to this pattern bore fruit. Now notice, as they wanted to grow in their grace through learning, as they wanted to be present to one another, one of the things that you don't see in the early church lists is, and they memorized all the fundamentals of faith, and they had tests every day about whether or not that Christian was of right and of merit. They were devoted and committed to each other as much as they were to the work of the Spirit in their midst. So church, I ask you, as the body of Christ, where do we need to grow? What is the capacity we need to grow in? Is it opportunities for learning the apostles' teaching through individual Bible study or in good groups? Is it community? Are we longing to find in a small group or in a music ministry or some other way an opportunity to find ourselves invested in this community in a way that we cannot be shaken from? Do we need to remember to see God in sacrament through the gift of baptism and through the strength of communion? Do we, rem- do we need to grow in our patterns of prayer? Church, when I'm struggling, that's a pattern I can return to and lean on. I can seek God's Word. I can find community partnership, yes, within the walls of this place and its people, but beyond this place with folks who'd rather not have anything to do with the fact that I'm a pastor or Methodism. I can draw strength from the sacrament and remembering the sacrifice of Jesus and His invitation to me to live a life that is broken and poured out. And I'm a daily person of prayer. Not just to name my needs and hopes or even the ones I selfishly have for Camille and for my kids, but to long to know the people that God has gifted my ministry with and where their needs are and how I can pray for their health and their healing. Daily, I'm praying for the opportunity to hear God more clearly and to sit and to listen to where God would have us to go. So what of the four can you commit to growing in? If even just this week, in the weeks ahead, is it the learning? Is it the community? Is it a pattern of sacrament and remembering that sacrifice? Or maybe it's just a bit more intentional prayer. I close with this sentiment. I'm at my heart pragmatic. Now, I know that I read poems every day, and I have a philosophy degree, and I often sound very heady in my sermons, but I'm sensible, I'm realistic. I try not to be theoretical when it comes to the idea of how God is working in me and on me so that when you and I have to talk about that work, it doesn't have to just be some heady let's pray about it enterprise, but we too can be pragmatic and sensible about what God is doing in you. 
why do I still have a hope in the life of the church? Why bother? Because the singular confession I can make over the last 40 years of my life is that God's church has been a part of my redemption. It's never been perfect. It hasn't always been right. But I know from Andy's story, it has fixed me in a way that I cannot fix myself. It has shown me hope in a way that I thought there would only be despair. And it has demonstrated love at times in my life when I knew I was unlovable. And so if I have gained a small piece of the glory of the potential of the church, my answer to so what has everything to do with hope and the work of the Spirit of God continuing that living witness in our life and common promise. Whether it be learning, whether it be community, whether it be sacrament or prayer, may God continue to work on us so that when the world comes to ask, so what does Valencia United Methodist Church have for me? What does this God have to do with me? We're equipped to say, look and see. Be a part of this family of faith. Friends, let us pray.